is so good to be with you in um, this opportunity this morning to dive into God's Word uh, and to see what He has uh, for us individually and as a body. Um, get to continue in this series through Advent. Today we're going to talk about victorious joy um, and what that means and what that might mean to us. Uh, I want to start by reading uh, a couple of verses out of Luke chapter 2. Um, and the, the, the shepherds are in the field, and the angels have come to them. Uh, not an everyday experience for them. This would have been rather wild. And uh, this is what uh, the angel says. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger says, I bring you good news of great joy. And so this morning we'll get to unpack uh, what that means uh, and what that means to us. So uh, let's pray uh, and we'll dive in. God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to worship with one another. Lord, we thank you for your presence here. Um, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just be at work in our head and in our hearts. Um, Lord, that you would guide us and teach us. We love you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I, I think I wrote uh, the, the beginning of this message probably like six times uh, and kept rewriting it. And uh, not because of, oh, you know, I just want to perform really well or any, you know, anything like that, but trying to build like the appropriate on-ramp uh, to talk about joy in, in, a, in a biblical way uh, that is just readily helpful to us. And I realized in my conversations with the teaching team and as I began to prepare, I, I realized that, you know, I, I brought some of my own uh, verbiage uh, and how I have for my life of faith sort of thought about joy. And often when you can even listen to sermons and read a lot of articles and things like that, where when people talk about joy, they often say, well, there's this thing called joy and then there's this more fleeting thing called what? Happiness, Right. And, and I was used to that. And so often, uh, sort of like Christian culturally, you know, you think of it like kind of the community pool center, right? Where there's this shallow kiddie pool, right? And that's called happiness. And both non-believers and believers alike kind of splash around in this thing called happiness. And we know that, you know, it's relatively fleeting. It's hard to grasp. It's so easy uh, to lose what we kind of call happiness, right? Um, it's what, December in 2022. And so just log on, check your 401k balance and boom, happiness is gone. Um, you know, uh, and, and all of that. And then, but then the conception is that, oh, okay, so uh, then there's this other pool. Well, okay, this pool is for believers, right? And this, this is this deeper pool, and, 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 and it's called joy. Well, uh, as, <laughs> amen. Uh, and, and as I sort of unpacked uh, this and learned more, that the Bible never makes a distinction between those two words. Uh, happiness and joy are used often interchangeably in God's word. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that we're not still saying that the, those emotions and the levity and the feelings of, you know, our, so our, our emotions are along for the ride sometimes when it comes to joy and happiness. And that's what we're talking about that is fleeting and elusive at times. But when the, when the Bible talks about happiness and joy, it uses those words together. And so this morning as we unpack we're going to talk about, uh, instead of it being two separate pools, in a sense, uh, to think that the, I mean, the Bible talks about joy as one pool, 
one in which both believers and non-believers alike can swim around. But what we'll discover this morning is that through the gospel and through the person of Jesus Christ, we are given access to swim at a depth of joy, a depth of joy that, that reaches into our lives, no matter what is going on in our lives. Um, and, and it is through Jesus that we, we can swim sort of in the deep end of joy, in the deep end of happiness. Does that make sense? And so we'll continue to, to unpack that together. Listen, in John, I think it is John 17, uh, Jesus would be praying to the Father and he would say, uh, he, was, he would be praying for his disciples and for you and I, and he would say, I want them to have the full measure of my joy. He didn't just say, I want them to have my joy, right? God's common grace over, you know, uh, our, over creation in the world that people experience joy and happiness, right? And we use those words together. Uh, but Jesus says, what, what kind, not just what kind of joy, but saying the full measure of my joy, the richness of my joy, right? In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that, you know, I have come, when he's talking about the purposes for Jesus to come, is that I've come to give life and life to the full, right? Abundant life. And so what we see in so many things, uh, in all things ultimately, is that Jesus comes and brings abundance, richness, fullness, right? And we know that this is true because you could say, look, you don't have to uh, be Christian to have a healthy marriage. And yet look at what Jesus brings into marriage, that through him we see his meaning and purpose and the beauty of what marriage is meant to reflect, right? He brings richness and meaning and purpose to things. You can have a newborn child and just be overwhelmed with the happiness and joy that comes with that. But in Christ, you realize, man, I'm holding something that's on purpose. I'm holding something that's going to last forever. Do you see how Jesus Christ brings richness into our lives and into all things? And ultimately, it's, it's through him. And so Jesus would say that about happiness and joy, that he's saying, look, I, I come to give abundance to your joy, abundance to your happiness, a fullness to it. Because mind you, Jesus is saying this to his disciples. You know, and, and many of us know where, where the lives of his disciples, the apostles are headed in the early church, right? Jesus would say to them, look, I am going to give you a joy. You will be rejoicing and it will never get taken away from you. It'll never be taken away from you. Well, who is he talking to? He's talking about men. And the early church, they're going to be hunted, persecuted, beaten, tortured, and martyred for their faith. And he's saying, I'm giving you a kind of joy, right? Not fleeting, just emotions, right? But I'm going to give you a kind of joy. Not just a kind of joy. You see how I still say it? A depth of joy, right? A depth of joy that will coincide even along those things as you experience them. A joy, a happiness so deep that it cannot be robbed from you, cannot be taken away. You know, when I was uh, a kid around 10, 11 years old, I, I grew up knowing that before I was born, I had an older sister who passed away when she was a little girl, uh, just a toddler. And I, I remember, uh, it's interesting, I'm the, I'm the fifth child in my family. Uh, and so, it's so I, those of you who have siblings, oldest, youngest, all that kind of stuff, it's like my family had so many chapters of life before I even came around. And, um, and so I remember talking to my dad one morning saying, Dad, look, would you, I, you know, I've always, I was always kind of scared asking this question, but I finally just asked, I said, Dad, will you just tell me everything about my sister? Like, will you just tell me everything um, that happened 
uh, and, and what you were feeling and what happened to my, my brothers and, and to my mom and what happened. And my dad, uh, on an early Sunday morning, would unpack just the whole story of how my sister passed away and its effect on my family and how the body of Christ surrounded them and um, the grief and sorrow that they went through and were continually um, going through. And, and, and it, was a, it was a really um, humbling morning for me to listen to this story. What stood out to me, though, more than anything, and my parents didn't even know this, was it was, it was a Sunday morning, and so we kind of shuttled off to church, right? And I've, I just have this kind of new weight uh, and, and sadness. Uh, for, and, I, and mind you, I never sort of put on a grief that I never wore in my family, right? But I just began to just feel for my family and what they experienced before I came around. And yet, there on Sunday morning, my mom and dad standing together, and what were they doing? Worshiping, right? And, and to them, it was just another Sunday morning. But for, for me, I, I was going, gosh, like how, how can you stand here and worship after everything you just told me you, you, you went through as a family? Taking notes at the serving, service, saying amen to encourage the pastor. Someone's standing up there and giving their testimony about how God showed up in like these little tiny things. And they're going, praise God, you know. And I'm, I'm just staring, watching my parents going, what do they know? What do they believe? You know, the Bible says that, you know, the joy of the Lord is my what? My strength. You know, there's something I sensed in my, my, my mom and dad. And mind you, I'm not saying that I looked at my mom and dad and every day of my life they're just smiling ear to ear. and You know, you know what I mean? But no, what, what, what allowed them to stand there and to worship fully? And I believe that my, my, my parents believe and believed um, some of these important truths that, that through Christ gave them access to a depth of joy an unbelievable depth of joy that allowed, uh, that, that coincided with their sorrows. So this is a Christmas message. I'm going to depart from Christmas for just a morning, and I promise we'll come back. But what I want to do is I want to go to Romans chapter 8, and I want to look at some of the words, just three verses that Paul are, gives to us. And it is, because why? Because Jesus was saying to Paul, to the, I mean, to the disciples, and eventually through Paul, right, of saying, look, you know, you're going to have a, a joy that can never be taken away from you. And so I want to look at, at some of what, what Paul believed and what he trusted in God because I think that if we can grasp and understand the things that Paul articulates in, in these verses, that we will have a better, fuller, richer uh, access through Christ to, to experience this kind of joy and happiness. And so we're going to read uh, Romans 8, uh, just verses 28 to 30. It says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Uh, Okay, he doesn't say the word joy. That's fine. Uh, but we, we want to look at verse by verse by verse here, just these, just these three. Man, what does Paul believe? 
There are three things that I would like to point out to us this morning that I think can be so helpful to us um, as we look at this. And, and, and here is the, is the primary uh, thing that I want us to hear is that when we talk about the depth of joy, man, what is offered to, to us as believers is to swim in a depth of joy, a depth of happiness that, that not only uh, can coexist along deep suffering and grief in our lives, but such a deep joy that it can even overwhelm our grief and our sorrow, a sort of impervious joy that can never be taken away from us. And so we're going to look at verse 28. It says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know, it's just two words, but you know, it's a very confrontational two words. And it's a very helpful two words. Why? Because what is God saying can happen in the life of a believer? All things. Do you see that? You know, what things? All things, right? See, immediately what that does is it begins to challenge sometimes what I know that myself and many, uh, many of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, can have an understanding that we think that one of the promises is that through my faith and my love of God that I'm going to have better life circumstances, right? That if I love God and I serve God and I obey God, I may be able to avoid certain life circumstances. I will have an easier life. Now listen, how long would it take for us to fill this room of testimony of how just absolutely untrue that is, right? The loss of those, loss of a job, loss of incredible relationship, financial burden, the loss of a loved one, right? You see that the Christian's life and the, and, and, and the believer and the non-believer, right, the life circumstances are the same. And Paul begins very quickly just to say that, man, God is going to work, but he's going to work in all things. Okay, all things are going to happen in the life of a believer. Because listen, just a couple verses later, Paul's going to say, and what can separate me? Oh, where is it? My notes. What can separate me from the love of Christ? He says, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Right? Paul expected these things to be a part of their lives. He knew it, it would be. And he's saying, yet, yet none of those things can separate us from God. And so it is so important, if we're going to begin to understand and grasp the things that Paul did, if we're going to be able to swim into the depths of joy that is offered to the believer, I think one of the first things we have to do is have to kind of break away some of the misbelief that, that by faith I'm going to have better life circumstances. But listen, I, I was talking to friends, this was over 10 years ago, talking to friends, um, uh, and just the one time I had friends and, um, no, uh, and I was talking to these friends oh, here, here, yes and they said uh, we're pregnant and we, we're celebrating with them like oh you're pregnant like that's fantastic and, and immediately these are uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and we began to kind of worship together of like man God is so good you know and, and then uh, they kind of hit my wife and I with something that, that really caught my attention they said yeah you know we've been trying to have a baby and we have been very 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 faithful this year and so God gave us a child you see do you hear a really subtle danger of what she said of what they said to me they said we've been really really faithful so God gave us a child. Now, and you know, there's plenty of sermons to talk about what works-based faith is, but it's this idea of like, man, God has done something incredible and you kind of start to reach around to pat yourself on the back, right? And say, ah, we did a good job and God gave us something good for it. Now imagine that same sentence said into the ears of a couple who's been dealing with infertility for a decade. Oh, I just guess we're not faithful enough. 
No. Oh, my gosh. All things, all circumstances. Man, God does not promise better life circumstances. But here is one of the things that he promises. It's the following words. What are they? It says that God works for the good of those who love him. Right? Because we know that we live in a broken world. We know we live in a world where all things are, are fractured by the reality of sin and death. Bodies are I, I, falling apart. I, mean, I, I think about my son sitting on the floor with like another broken toy, you know, another missing piece, torn instructions. And my son just looking up at me, you know, after like the 20th toy is broken and just going, Dad, why does everything break? And, and I'm like, well, you just wait. <laughs> no. I mean, because, but, but it, it, it's, of course, it's not meant to make us apathetic or cynical about life, right? But it's a, it's a sober reality of like, man, there's, there's brokenness everywhere. Things are falling apart. Relationships are falling apart. Bodies are falling apart. Marriages, on and on. Sin, sin fractures everything, both around me and in me. And so... How do we lean then on this promise that God is working together, working all things together for our good? What does that mean? What it means is this. It's, the Bible is, communicates, not just in these verses, but in many others, that God is working things together, what? For our ultimate good, right? That if we could see what God sees, if we could have his perspective, if we could be able to back up enough to see that, man, God is at work both in the good things in my life, but also in the really, really difficult things in our lives, you see, because so much about this is just our expectations as we come to God, right? Because we just said, let's tear down the expectation that faith means an easier life. But let's also tear down the expectations of that we're always going to understand what God is doing, right? How many, you know, it's like, all right, God, this really awful thing is going on in my life. I'm going to give you a day. You know, I, I better see what you're doing, right? And then at the end of the week, you're like, okay, <laughs> all right. You know, well, don't wait a day. Don't wait a week, month, three years, 10 years. Now, here's the thing. How many of us through testimony could raise our hands and say, I have seen how God has used tremendous joy and also just tremendous pain and suffering in my life for my good? Absolutely. Now, right, and, we, and we worship God for those things. We worship him for those things. In fact, listen, um, any, one, of the, one of the realities of this truth uh, of, of, of all life circumstances, both good and bad, listen, is that it, it's going to lead us into a life of more praise. Why? Well, because if, if we already expect that, man, sin has already broken and fractured all, fractured all things, instead of patting ourselves on the back, anytime anything is held up, anything, anytime, anytime anything is healthy, there's money in my bank account, I have, a, I have a spouse who loves me and knows me, I have friends, I have a body of believers to worship, I have a car, you know, it's sunny, whatever it is, what do we begin to do? Well, we're not patting ourselves on the back, we realize that because if everything is falling apart and if something is being held up, who's holding it up? It's God, right? And so, and, and so this reality just leads us into a life of more worship, a life of more praise. We're not patting ourselves on the back. Well, because I've been obedient, because I've been faithful, therefore God put some money in my bank account. No, it's praise God that there's money in my bank account. Praise God that relationships are, are, are there. Praise God for a healthy marriage. God, thank you for my health. Thank you for this. But we also know that, man, that, that even when things are broken, even as things, uh, that, that they, they, as they fall apart, we can trust, what, that God is going to use all things, both good things and bad things. Man, he's going to use them for my ultimate good. That he is going to use everything. That if I could see what he sees, if I could know what he knows, the Bible says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. 
that he is going to work all things together for our good. When, what does that mean? God is most concerned with what good things, right? We talk about expectations. There's probably a lot around that word good. What is our good? God is concerned with those things in our lives that would keep you from him. Your pride, your hard heart, your inability to see your lostness, your weaknesses, your belief that you don't need God. He's going to work all things together for our good. What? So that we would know him and that nothing could separate us from him. Now, sometimes what that means is in those of us that are in deep suffering or even just afraid of deep suffering is to say, okay, God's going to use it. But does that mean that God trivializes suffering and just says, hey, look, God's, hey, I'm in charge. You see, we have the visible image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. And when we look at his life, we do not see a savior who is indifferent to our suffering. Right? As Jesus Christ stands outside Lazarus' tomb, right? Lazarus has died, and people are upset, rightly upset, and grieving, and suffering, and wailing, and crying. And Jesus is standing, and he doesn't stand there going, Guys, I'm going to use it. Right? Right? What does he do with them? He weeps. He weeps with them. In fact, even the Greek language for we, like Jesus cried, it falls so short because the Greek word is the same Greek word that they would use to describe like an animal, like a bull before it charges, like as it huffs, right? So he was weeping, but he was also just rebuking, you see, the brokenness in front of him, right? Because what Jesus hates brokenness, he hates sin. And he hates what it had done to his friend Lazarus and, it's, and, and, and the effects of that brokenness on those who loved him. But Jesus was deeply compassionate, deeply personal in all that he said and that he did. Account after account in the Gospels, Jesus Christ is confronted with broken relationships, broken minds and bodies, broken communities, culturally, religiously, sexually, all of these things that are just torn apart by the brokenness in the world. And Jesus' response was constantly compassion. You know, the, again, the, the, the word that in Greek would be splachna, Right? And it was this kind of compassion that, that you, he, it literally it means that his bowels are turning over inside of him. A kind of compassion that he can feel. Deeply feel. That's, that's our savior when he sees the effects of the brokenness in us and around us. But what is so beautiful about Jesus Christ is that he not only is he compassionate about our brokenness and our suffering and our pain and our hurt, but Jesus would communicate then and now uh, all the same message of saying, listen, there's actually something worse than your blindness. There's something worse than your poverty. There's something worse than being an outcast and a reject. There's something worse than, than losing your mental health. There's something, there's something worse than your own self-hatred or the hatred that you have for others. It's this, what, that despite all of those things, worse than all of those things is that you wouldn't know me. Because that's the thing that can really take you out is that you do not know the God that made you and loves you. And so Jesus wouldn't skirt around our suffering, but he always drove straight through it. To say, man, there's something worse, is that you wouldn't know me. And so we have a Savior that came and was tempted by sin, was maligned and misunderstood, was mocked and beaten, and, and, and put on a cross and murdered. Why? So that, it, so that when we suffer those things, man, th th those things could never get in between us and our relationship with our Father in heaven. That they could never stop us from knowing our Father. God is not indifferent. You see, when Christians walk away from faith, when they walk away from the Lord, whatever that means, 
that many times Christians will walk away from God. Why? Be- not because just they're suffering in their lives, but because they are so unbelievably shocked that it's even happening. Right? God, I, I thought that if I loved you, I thought if I served you, I, I mean, I, I feel like I've been doing everything right. How could you let this happen? Right? Have you heard it before? Maybe you've said it. I know I have. John Edwards, um, a famous pastor, uh, wrote about someone who understands and grasps these things that Paul understood and talked about in these verses. And he, sa- he said this about that person who understands it and, and gets this kind of uh, impervious joy and, and, and is swimming in the depths of it. He says, that person may look down upon the whole army of worldly affliction under his feet and with a slight and disregard and consider with joy that however great these afflictions are and however numerous, let them all join their forces together against him and put on their most rueful and dreadful habits, forms, and appearances, and spend all their strength, vigor, and violence with endeavors to do him some sort of real harm and mischief, and he will realize that it was all in vain, right? That man, no matter what the world throws at me, no matter what life circumstances, both good and especially bad, you know, John Ezra is saying that the life of the believer is saying, bring it on, life, right? Because in all things, God is going to work together for my good. All things, If we can understand verse 28, I think it means, what, a life of more praise. That when God holds things up, we're not patting ourselves on the back. We're saying, God, you're so good. I'm so thankful for you. You can just see joy and praise in all of the little things and the big things. Man, a life of more praise. But it also, if we can understand this, it also means a life of more patience with God. Less bitterness towards him. The promise, so the first point in verse 28 here is this, that all things for our good, that the promise of God is that all things, all circumstances will work ultimately for our good. This is deeply important for us to understand if we are to swim in the depths of joy offered to us. Now verse 29 It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now listen, Uh, uh, it is very good for us uh, to, you know, memorize scripture, to, you know, have, you know, I know we like to, you know, frame a piece of scripture and put it on the wall. What do we, uh, go to at home or the good good homes, I avoid all these places. But, you know, there's stories where there's just verses on everything, right? And it's great. Uh, but listen, we all know uh, that one of the dangers of um, sort of cherry-picking a verse out of the Bible is sometimes we remove it from its context, and all of a sudden it kind of develops a different meaning than it ever meant to have, right? Well, verse 28, the verse we just looked at prior, I think is one of those verses, right? Kind of plastered on your wall for God is going to work all things together for your good, right? Well, it's so important that both as in our own faith, but also in those who see that, understand what it means. And the following verse here in 29 gives this so much life, because here's the danger, right? Verse 28, God's going to work all things together for your good, okay? Or you didn't get into grad school? Well, listen, God's got a better school right around the corner, right? He's going to work it together for your good. You're going to get the grad school you need. Oh, you lost your job? He's got a better job for you. One, one that'll be fuller and more meaningful to you. Oh, it'll, be, it'll be great. Oh, you broke up with that person that you thought you were going to marry, that you were in love with? Man, God's got a better spouse for you. Okay, now listen. God doesn't promise any of those things. None of them. Okay, again, through testimony. How many of us could stand here saying, I, I lost the love of my life and I'm still single? 
there was no person right around the corner. That grad school that I didn't get into, that was the end of the road on that dream. And that's where it stopped. Oh, oh you, 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 do you see? It is so important for us not to uh, provide sort of a shallow salve to our faith, right? Because what we're saying is like, oh, the circumstances, all things, all life circumstances, it's not going the way you thought it would. Don't worry, God is going to promise you the life circumstances that you think you deserve. That's not true. But he will use it, all things, together for your good. You see, God is offering us something that isn't dependent on relationships, that isn't dependent on a job, that isn't dependent on circumstances. And the beauty of this verse 29 is how how it pairs with verse 28 and gives it so much more meaning because, yes, the promise is that he's working things all together for our good. So as we look at verse 28, it's so important for us to know what it means good, our ultimate good, the things that would keep us from the Lord. But also in 29, we get this beautiful promise. What? That we are predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Now listen, uh, Paul would use the word predestined throughout the Bible. And thankfully, many theologians, right, get into wonderful debates about predestined predestination and salvation and all of those things. And it's a wonderful thing uh, that theologians and apologists do that together so that we can understand. But in this instant, Paul is not trying to toss his hat into the ring for that argument. What he is saying is that it's fixed, that whatever promise that he's about to tell you is absolutely fixed, okay? It can, you, there's nothing that you can do to change what? That, he, that God is going to make you more like his son. It's a promise. It's a promise. God will take every circumstance in your life and not only will he work it from an ultimate sense for your good, he will, what a beautiful promise, beginning right now, make you more like his son. You are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ did not come into our world so that you wouldn't suffer. He came into the world and suffered the things that he did so that when we suffer, that no matter how awful those things are, that we will be more like him. That's an unbelievable promise. And listen, we, we, we need to fall in love. Listen, we need to fall in love with the person of Jesus. It, it is not enough simply to say, well, I want to be obedient. By the way, obedience is great. There's too much of, you know, sometimes Christian faith that's like, I will obey when I feel it, you know, when I'm convinced. No, just obey. God's God, right? Obey, right? But at the same time, there's this deep imperative what, that we would fall in love with Jesus because if we're being promised to be conformed into, to, into him, well, into what? Look at his life. Someone who speaks incredible truth, Right? and yet at the same time is able to to give away just unbelievable grace and love at the same time. Someone who's able to speak wisdom in a way that just penetrates. Jesus just challenges us, what? Not just to feel something, but to think, right? Jesus gives us incredible wisdom, and yet the wisdom that Jesus gives comes across. It's like mountain-your-mouth warmth, right? The way Jesus communicates. Jesus is unbelievably loyal. He's brave. He's courageous. I mean, it's not just who he loved, right? It was how he loved. 
Just the, I mean, and, and, and for you, if you see this promise that it is fixed that you'll be more like Jesus, I'm gonna tell you, if that does not do something for you, here's my challenge for you, is I would challenge you just every day during this Christmas season, right, to just be washed in the Gospels, to just read account after account of Jesus Christ and what he did and how he did it, right? And as the closer and closer you get to the cross, you realize that I am written into the script of this rescue story. And look at the life of Jesus Christ. What a life. Like, what a life. And the fact that Paul is saying that through God's word, man, I'm, I'm predestined to be like him? Praise God. Now, here's the challenge is I think we're just so wired in our minds for performance. We're so wired for what we deserve or what we don't deserve. And I think when we hear that, we go like, hey, Matt, listen, you do not realize how much I am flailing around in my faith, right? You're going to be more, God's going to use, you're going to be more like your son, his son. He's going to make you more like Jesus. Now, you do not understand, Matt, the things that I've done. You don't understand that I have done things that no one knows about, right? And it just eats me a lot. He's going to make you more like his son. You don't realize what people think about me, what I think about myself. You don't, you don't realize my past, what, what I say. He's going to make you more like his son. It's fixed. It's predestined. You will be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. That one day, Oh man, one day that you, each and every one of you, when he calls you home or when he returns, that you are going to reflect the exact same perfect holiness and glory as Jesus Christ. Man, that's awesome. So number one, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna toss away some of our expectations that I think rob us of joy. I'm going to have a life of all, I, all circumstances, right? There's no promise that these things will not happen in my life because of my faith, but I'm going to believe that God is going to work all things together for my good. And also, on top of that, what an incredible promise that it is completely fixed, completely predestined, that he is going to make me more like his son. His son, and when I look at his life, that's someone that I want to be more like, more kind, more patient, more loving, more persevering, more courageous, more brave. I want to be like him. And lastly, man, in verse 30, oh, that's point two, guys. I'm not great with slides, okay? Point two, a good that can never be lost. It's fixed. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right, verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Man, I, I, I hope that there is a present comfort for you that as you hear these things, that you realize that, well, I mean, one, like, I, I just know that in this room there is tremendous grief, suffering, broken expectations, and I hope you hear how deeply, deeply compassionate Jesus is towards you and, and just how much he loves you. But I also hope that, that as we as we begin to have access through the person and the love of Jesus Christ, that we would also see what Paul is talking about here in verse 30. He's saying, look, he's called you, right? The Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven. He's been after you and he's justified you. He's clothed you in the, in the righteousness of his son through the cross and through, right? On the cross and through the grave, right? But he is also one day, ultimately and perfectly, a little bit of what I already talked about, right? One day Jesus Christ will return and the whole world, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, right? That Jesus Christ is Lord. 
forward that Jesus Christ is coming back one day and he, is, he will make everything new, everything perfect. I mean, that, that's why these Advent words, peace and love and hope, this is Christian hope, right? That Jesus Christ will return one day. And when he returns, right, his glory will be so immense, right, that, that not only will it just overshadow the suffering that we've been in, that his glory is so bright that when we look at the suffering that he led us through, that we will see that suffering justified. We'll see his love and his purposes through everything. And I just know that Paul holds on to this. Later, Paul would say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That man, that what, what Paul was seeing, that what Paul knew was heading into his life, shipwreck and torture and beaten and being hunted down. He's saying nothing. All of that just pales in comparison to the glory that one day will be revealed. And when Paul writes these words, he is saying that it is so that your glory on a collision course with the glory of Jesus Christ is so, so sure that he uses the past tense when he's talking about you, right? It's already done. It's already fixed. He's called you. He's justified you and he's glorified you. He's so confident in what is to come. And that's why we can call this victorious joy, right? In a series of saying, well, what makes this joy victorious? I mean, not just the depths of it, but man, this is a victorious, unbelievable joy. As the worship team begins uh, to come out, listen, that, that we would hear uh, from this, that, man, joy is not about our circumstances. Oh, I made a slide. I'm telling you, I'm not great. Okay. That's the third point. The best things are yet to come. That Christ will return. That we are on a collision course with glory. That joy is not about our circumstances. Man, joy is about God's promises. I mean, our circumstances, they change, they shift. Thing, our expectations are broken. Things are better than we expected. And often things are a lot worse than we expected, right? Sin is broken and fractured anything. And so joy is not based on these things that are constantly moving, things that we cannot grasp and control. Joy is about the unshakable, unmovable reality of, of God's grace in and through my life. That's, that's, that is what gives us access to the depths of joy. You see, it's through the person of Jesus Christ where you see the richness and the fullness of joy attached because of Jesus Christ, right? Of course, if you don't know the Lord, you can look at a mountainside and just see and just reap the joy and the happiness of creation. Can you not? Yet through Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden, I have somewhere to direct that rejoicing. I have somewhere to direct it. I don't have to just keep hunting down sunsets and mountainscapes, which I will continue to give glory to God to, but man, now I just want to continue to hunt the creator. I want to know him him you know see and that's the richness and fullness of joy that we have that's what allows access into this further depth of joy a joy that can we're just so it's so deep that it can never be taken away from us it can we can never it never be robbed and and that's what i mean that, just, that there's nothing about joy there's nothing about happiness that trivializes our suffering there's nothing about it that, that is about glossing over our suffering with a smile. No, joy is the result of the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only thing that really takes your suffering seriously. The joy of the Lord is the only thing that can actually go deep enough that really takes your suffering so seriously that this is the kind of joy that goes deep enough to actually reach the kind of grief and sorrow that we experience in our lives. A kind of joy that can coincide with suffering. A kind of joy that, a depth of joy, you always see me just keep saying kind of joy, a depth of joy that coincides with our suffering can even overwhelm it. 
I believe that Paul believed and knew these things. And I believe that he trusted God in these things. And I know that for us, in order to to believe these things, that all things, that he's working things together for my good, that he's conforming me into the pattern of his son, and that one day the best things are yet to come, and that is a very real hope that is supposed to affect my joy, that, listen, for me to believe these things, for for these things to actually have an effect on my life, man, I've got to be, I've, I've got to read this. I've got to be washed in the gospel. I need to be reminded of this. I need people in my life who are sisters and brothers in Christ that can encourage me in those moments when I need encouraged. I need to worship. When, things, when God is holding things up, I need to remember to praise him and not to pat myself on the back. So I encourage you to continue to read, continue to worship, continue to gather together so that we can swim in these kind of depths. And that's why, look, I told you it was a Christmas message, okay? And so I'm, well, let's come back. Jesus Christ, a baby in a manger. And we sing, you know, we sing those words, joy to the world, Right? Man, there's just so much meaning to that, right? The joy that he brings to the world, a richness and a fullness of joy to us. That when we see Jesus in a manger, it's not just like, oh, you know. But you realize this, man, he, he brings a kind of joy, a kind of victorious joy that in him and through his life and through his volunteering and his obedience all the way to the cross and through the grave, that through him, that there is nothing, no circumstances in my life that will ever separate me from God's love. So man, when I see Jesus Christ, that's joy. It's not just good feelings. By the way, it's awesome when our feelings come along for the ride, amen? But they don't always. And so there's a depth of joy, a depth of truth. God wants you to think and know these things and allow them to settle into your heart and be rooted in the unshakable truths of the gospel and his son. That's victorious joy. Now listen. My sister's name is Stephanie Joy. Awesome. And I cannot wait to meet my big sister. Eight months ago, my daughter was born, and I had the honor to name her Lydia Joy. I wanted to honor my sister, yes. But what I want is I want another generation of joy like that that my parents have, that I've seen in the life and the body of Christ that is only available through Jesus Christ. I want another generation of joy in the Von Steins. Victorious joy. It's deep and it can never be taken away from you. Let's worship together.